I just want to caution us against being so quick to read what we've learned from the economy back into the imminent trinity because it does two things. It corrodes the mystery. It, it makes the mystery just sort of dissipate until we end up with three being just like us and, and we understand them completely. And then we know we're in heresy. Or the other thing that it does is that it introduces into the imminent trinity some sort of inequality. Yes. Some sort of subordinationism. Yep. And that can happen so easily. And, and I think it does happen with those evangelicals who talk about eternal functional subordination of the Son. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. In the next several episodes, I am inviting some of today's top theologians onto the Credo Podcast to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I have just published a new book called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book, I point out that we are experiencing Trinity drift. We have drifted away from the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and my book is meant to help you, help us, recover and retrieve a doctrine of the Trinity that is far more faithful. I invite you to join me in these next episodes as I sit down with these top theologians, and we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, not just what we believe, but how it also should affect our worship, our prayer, and so much more. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Craig Carter. I'm a professor of theology at Tyndale University in Toronto, and uh, I am uh, here today with Matthew Barrett, who has written this book, uh, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a book about Trinitarian Theology, and it's a book that uh, is uh, attempting to help us to understand some of the contemporary trends in, in Trinitarian Theology, and uh, and it's a book that is basically, well, it, it's got a thesis, and the thesis has to do with how we've drifted away from Nicene Trinitarianism, and in many cases, we, we've drifted without really realizing it, and this book tries to spell out what, in what way that has happened. And uh, today we're looking at chapter three, which really specifically zeroes in on social Trinitarianism. And Matthew, you start out with a story here. You talk about the Christmas uh, Carol, uh, yeah. Charles Dickens, and you, you mentioned a quote, um, and the quote actually comes from this book, uh, Lewis Ayers, yeah. one of the very best books on fourth century theology. Yeah. And on page seven, he says... Um, in many ways, the argument of my last chapter, he's just been going through explaining what he's going to do in the book. And when it comes to the last chapter, he says, the argument is not that modern Trinitarianism has engaged with pro-Nicene theology badly, but that it has barely engaged with it at all. That's a pretty big claim. It he's is. saying, you know, the modern 20th century Trinitarian, there's supposed to be this big revival. Yeah. Right, of Trinitarian theology, and yeah. in the 20th century, everybody's talking about the Trinity, and it's supposedly a big revival. But he says it's not really a revival of Nicene Trinitarianism, and he says as a result, the legacy of Nicaea, 
remains paradoxically the unnoticed ghost at the modern Trinitarian feast. Now, the unnoticed ghost at a feast is a pretty clear reference, I think, to Macbeth. The famous scene in uh, Act 3, where Macbeth has been, he has committed murder twice. He's killed Duncan. He, He has also killed, arranged for the murder of Banquo. And he's now hosting a feast, and he's the new king of Scotland. And he and Lady Macbeth are hosting this feast. But but Macbeth sees the ghost of Banquo, the man he had murdered, at the feast. But nobody else sees this ghost. <laughs> so Macbeth is, is he looks crazy because he's talking to a, a, something that nobody can, can see. In fact, the ghost is sitting in Macbeth's chair. And mm-hmm. when they ask Macbeth to take his place, he says, where? Where do I sit? Because there's somebody sitting in his chair. Nobody else can see him. But so they're beginning to think that, and Lady Macbeth tries to cover up for him. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, so you gotta, so, so if you think of Macbeth as the Enlightenment, you know, uh, and the, uh, the feast here is 20th century Trinitarian theology, and all the theologians are gathered, all the nobility of Scotland are at this feast, and everybody, you know, all the Barts and Ronners and Maltmans and Tannenbergs and all the theologians are there. Yeah. But the, uh, there's this ghost, this ghostly yeah. presence. And uh, according to Ayers, that's the, the legacy of Nicaea. Now, what's really interesting is that in, the, in Act 4, Scene 1, Macbeth sees the ghost again. Yeah. And he goes to the witches, and he's trying to get some uh, guidance from them about the future. And he asks them, will the heirs of Banquo ever rule this country because mm. when he had Banquo killed, Banquo's son escaped. Yeah. Did not get assassinated. And so the witches conjure up a vision. And in this vision, he sees eight kings. And the last one looks exactly like Banquo. And he realizes these are the descendants of Banquo who will rule Scotland. Yeah. So I think this is really interesting because it's like the legacy of Nicaea has supposedly been killed by the Enlightenment. It's it's right. the old Trinitarian theology is gone. We've got this new stuff now. But but the ghost refuses to go away. It does. <laughs> the legacy of Nicaea is coming back. And yeah. the legacy of Nicaea is actually the future of yeah. the church. And I, I think that your book is kind of like a... a, um, a, a a straw in the wind. It's like a sign. You're you are you're talking about reviving these this ancient Trinitarian doctrine from the fourth century that was standard Trinitarian doctrine for most of the history of the church, yeah. but which a lot of people think is history now. It's gone. It's past. It's yeah. dead. And we need some something new, something updated, mm-hmm. something modern, something that we can sell to, you know, something that modern people can understand and get their minds around. And social Trinitarianism seems to fit the, the spirit of the age. It seems to be, it fit right in with a lot of modern ideas. And yeah. and um, and it's, it's kind of hard for some people to believe that L- L- Nicaea would ever come back. Yeah. But, but I think that this, uh, this little illusion that, that Ayers makes it. <laughs> It's interesting because, it, in a way, I think <clears throat> kill it, and and that's what I that's what I get from your book is that uh, uh, you know enlightenment or no enlightenment, modernity or no modernity, 
the, the, the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity is never going to die. It's never going to disappear. It's going to be around long after us. And after we're dead and buried, there's going to be a church confessing this doctrine. That's um, right. What, what, how, how do you react to that? Well, it's a consolation to my, my soul. <laughs> because um, on the one hand, so when I wrote that chapter, uh, I was overwhelmed. Uh, it was actually like twice as long. And I got done with it and I thought, oh, the publisher's never going to take this. It's too long. It was just too long. I mean, it was a book in and of itself. Uh, I was going into uh, one each uh, kind of layer, peeling back the layers of, of social Trinitarianism and in all of its diversity. And so I realized, okay, uh, you know, I need to be able to present this to um, students and pastors and churchgoers. And what's the essence of it? What's what's the, the, the theme of continuity running throughout? And as I did that, I just was was overwhelmed by one case after another in which either Nicene Trinitarianism was kind of patted on the head as a thing of the past, but um, the new game was, you know, in town and it might, certain social Trinitarians might keep parts of it and be critical of other parts. And then you had other social Trinitarians who were just outright uh, just abandoned the whole project of Nicene Trinitarianism and completely, as you said, just refashioned the doctrine of the Trinity in the strongest social terms. And uh, anyway, long story short, um, when I got done, I, it was a bit um, discouraging to be honest with you. And so to, to our, you know, viewers, if, if you read that chapter and just feel depressed, then I've succeeded <laughs> because that's, that's honestly how I have felt at times that I just spent, um, I've spent years just like immersed in literature and, and just case after case realizing um, where's Nicaea again? Uh, where's the, the biblical Orthodox doctrine of Trinity and it, you just keep digging, digging, and it's hard to find. And it can be overwhelming and maybe even a bit discouraging. So you putting it that way, especially the references to Macbeth, is a, it's just a great comfort to me. Because when you get done with 20th century theology, or perhaps what we could call just modern theology at large, you start to feel like it's it's never coming back, not Nicene Trinitarianism will never come back in the way it once was. And we can talk about this later, but even among evangelicals, um, it's sometimes hard to find. So, you know, with the Macbeth reference, it's an encouragement to me to realize, you know what, you and I, we could die today or tomorrow or whenever, and um, there will be a retrieval of of biblical Nicene orthodoxy, no, no matter how big the feast becomes, <laughs> with, with all the different modern theologians at the table. And the way I put this in that in chap in chapter three is, you know, building off of Lewis Ayer's fine work, really, 
Uh, the way I put it in the book is that the, this ghost of, I call it the ghost of orthodoxy past. And I, I build off of uh, Dickens and Christmas Carol and all that. But uh, I, I basically say it will haunt us. It already is. I think, I think it already is, but it will continue to haunt us. And so, you know, and in, in earlier in the book, I used the back to the future reference with the, De- the DeLorean to introduce readers to Nicene uh, Orthodoxy. Uh, but in this chapter, I use the, the ghost of Orthodoxy past to say, let's, let's, uh, like Dickens, let's, let's go back in time, not that long ago, the 20th century, right before us, and let's look one room at a time in, in the midst of this big castle with this big feast going on, and let's take a hard look at our past, our recent past, because this ghost of orthodoxy past is not going to shut up. It's going to keep haunting us until we see what we've been, um, what we what we have just embraced. So anyway, that's a little bit of backstory. Probably too much information, but well, I, yeah, I think I, it's <laughs> appropriate. I really want to. Uh, I really want to uh, to get your the viewers really depressed. Okay. That's important. I, I, I think, I think you're correct in saying that, you know, um, until you see the problem, you don't really, um, you're not really necessarily open to how radical the solution needs to be. And this chapter, uh, I like, I, I hope that in our, our next half hour or so that we talk that, that this chapter, that people get the impression that, the problem is really serious. Like we're not just talking about um, little adjustments to the doctrine of God that we can agree to disagree about, but we're really talking about deep, serious issues in how we conceive of the nature of God. But also there's a, there's a depth issue. So it's really a deep issue, but it's also a wide issue. And one of the things you say in this chapter that I want to get to, I want to make sure we don't, uh, run out of time. I want to make sure that you get to the um, to the to the the part where we where you talk about how evangelicalism yeah. is not an exception. That we think that even we think that because we're evangelicals and we're in this evangelical world, evangelicalism's self image is yeah. that we're the orthodox ones. Right. We're the biblical Christians. We 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 preserve the the truth. We stand against liberalism. But in this chapter, you show that evangelicals have been affected by the spirit of the age, too. So yeah. I really want to make sure that we, we see how deep yeah. and how wide the problem is, because only then does the rest of the books, yeah. the prescriptions in the rest of the book really make sense. And, you know, uh, yeah, I do want to get there, Craig, because that that really is the, you know, spoiler alert, but that that really is the shock, is that wait a minute, we, you know, as evangelicals, we're used to saying the other, right? They're the ones, they, they've absorbed modern theology and they've got the problem. But uh, actually, if we take a, an honest look at ourselves, we start to notice, wait a second, there are indications here that we've been influenced too more than, than we probably think, which is probably a good segue um, to, you know, I, I would, Craig, you you obviously have a um, quite a story to share. You know, we've been talking about you know, kind of my story with with this book, but um, 
you as an evangelical yourself, uh, it's not the case that, you know, you've you've always just embraced a, a full-fledged, you know, classical, uh, nice understanding of the doctrine of God. You, I, I would love for, for everyone to kind of hear some of your story of you know, how exactly, uh, you, you know, you talked about almost like an illumination, but how exactly were your eyes opened to a Nicene Trinitarianism that previously, you know, you were, you were thinking more along the lines of kind of a modern social view of God. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I, I did my doctorate in the 1990s under John Webster. So I was working on Bart as my main theologian and, uh, but when it came time to write my thesis, I chose John Howard Yoder, who had been a student of Bart and who was a Mennonite. And he was a friend of my old church history professor, Jerry Zeman. Mm. And they had both gone to Bart's seminar in Basel um, uh, during uh, the 50s. They took the train from Zurich to Basel every week and, and sat in on Bart's seminar. And then they took the train home and they talked all the while. So they were good friends. And um, so anyway, I chose to write on Yoder. And... Um, I was kind of in the Yoderian, Bartian milieu at that point, uh, pacifist, Bartian approach to things. And um, after I, after I, I got to, um, uh, I, I got released from my sentence, I, I got out on parole. I had been in administration for about uh, uh, 12 straight years, and I finally got a sabbatical in 2004, and I got a chance to go back and just teach full-time after that. So um, I had written the book on Yoder and another follow-up book on social ethics, and now I was going to, I had the idea of doing a book on the doctrine of God in which I would uh, talk about the social Trinitarianism. I was reading people like Colin Gunton and Stanley Grenz and John Zizulis and people who were advocating social Trinitarianism, uh, Miroslav Volf, and um, so the idea was to to say, well, as you know, you have this loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and uh, there's harmony, and there's equality, and there's mutuality, and acceptance, and love, and uh, that sounds like a great foundation for social ethics. And so, why don't we? I want to write a book in which I would relate the doctrine of God to social ethics, and 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 basically because I perceived that that this was a new um, and more accurate. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, here's the premise I was working on. This is what Gunton and Ziziola said. They said that that recent research has has uncovered the fact that the that the uh, fourth century Eastern fathers were different from Augustine in the West. That Augustine in the West were the mere monotheists. And that the fourth, the, the the Cappadocian fathers, the Eastern fathers, were much more. Uh, they they started from the three, whereas Augustine started from the one, and they emphasized this social trinitarianism. <clears throat> and so this is what this was my premise that I was starting. By. I I believe them, like I I believe that that they knew what they're talking about. And um, but I wasn't at least I wasn't dumb enough to to write the book without actually reading the fourth century fathers for myself. 
And so over the next few years, I did that. And I used this book by Lewis Ayers in my seminar, fourth year seminar on fourth century Trinitarian theology. And uh, I used this book several times and I read it and read it and read it. I wore out a copy. This is my second copy. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, so lo and behold, I discovered that patristic scholarship did not support this idea that the East was social Trinitarian. It did not support a contrast between Augustine and the Cappadocians. It did not support the idea that pro-Nicene theology was um, different than the way it developed in the scholastic tradition, the Augustinian Thomas tradition in the West. And not only that, but in reading Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Augustine, people like John Baer, Francis Young, Khalid Anatolios, uh, Louis Ayers, Michelle Rene Barnes, Rowan Williams, and so on. It, it wasn't even among the actual real patristic scholars, it wasn't even hardly an issue. It was unanimous. And it was the opposite of what the systematic theologians, the modern systematic theologians were saying. So you've got all these modern systematic theologians in the 20th century saying uh, the Eastern Fathers are social Trinitarians. You've got all the patristic scholars saying, uh, no, they're not. And wow, that was that was a shock. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, I really came to an appreciation of patristic scholarship. Mm. Um, patristic scholarship is among the best scholarship in the academy today. Mm. Um, they they are they're serious. They are um, they they are. Um, they're just really concerned to get at what the fourth, what the fourth century fathers said. And they're not really trying to promote an agenda. They're just, they're really seriously doing historical work, trying to understand what it was that the, because it's one thing to quote the Nicene Creed. It's one thing to say the Nicene Creed. It's another thing to understand why certain phrases are in the Nicene Creed in the first place. And why it was felt necessary to rule out that, point of view and what was the backstory what was the argument going on that led to the inclusion of this word and why was why did it create so much controversy and all that like to understand the culture in which the nicene fathers operated and how they did theology how they related scripture and and philosophy and theology and and to realize that the hellenization thesis is is completely wrong that they, yeah. they weren't just taking over concepts from Greek philosophy, holus bolus, and then reinterpreting the Bible in the light of them. They weren't doing that. Yeah. And and to see the care and precision of thought and the the way that they when you really immerse yourself in that pro-Nicene culture and you understand what's behind the Nicene Creed and you understand what they're talking about, you realize things like like I'll hear people say today. Oh, divine, you believe in divine simplicity. Well, I'm not a Thomist. Yeah. Well, okay, but Thomas didn't invent divine simplicity. Khalid Anatolios makes the point that at the beginning of the fourth century controversy, simplicity was the one of the one of the on the list of things that everybody took for granted. That's right. Basic. Like, like I tell my students, I, I joke, I say, well, you know, in the fourth century, even the heretics believed in simplicity. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. realize that. And that that just changed my whole world, but it blew everything up because because here's um here the story that I've been told, and then I began to what what else about this story isn't true? Mm. What what else is to be questioned here? And that started the process of questioning everything, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where I eventually began to question Bart, 
And I began to question the whole 20th century Trinitarian revival, began to question all of social Trinitarianism. I began to question um, the idea that the Augustinian Thomas tradition is not a faithful development of the Nicene tradition. So I began to see that they really are, that Thomas is the one who sums up the fathers in many ways. Uh, he's not so much an innovator. He's he's dealing with Aristotle, but he's as much an Augustinian as he is an Aristotelian. And he's really, and Augustine really sums up the fathers. So that's where the connectedness of the great tradition comes from. We've got the fourth century Nicene fathers, but they're faithfully summed up in Augustine. He mediates their influence into the Middle Ages, the people like Anselm and Bonaventure and all the rest. And then Thomas kind of stands at the end of the long tradition and he looks back and taking into account the new challenges coming from Aristotle, he sums up that tradition. And then that's why his doctrine of God gets picked up in the post-Reformation scholasticism and becomes the basis of Reformed and Lutheran scholastic theology in the 17th and 18th century. So you've got a connected tradition all the way from the 17th century going all the way back to the second and third century fathers who were the pre-Nicenes and the Nicenes, the Augustine, the Middle Ages, Thomas, the post-Reformation scholastics. And it's only with the Enlightenment that you see a real rupture. So I came to understand that Enlightenment is the problem. And that's where so it's figuring out how did the Enlightenment affect modern theology so as to produce what we see in the 20th century in terms of social Trinitarianism. That's That was became the driving force in the last, the book that I wrote on interpreting scripture and the new one on contemplating God. So that's how that journey unfolded. And I ended up with the sense that there is such a thing as a great tradition. There is such a thing as historic orthodoxy. And it can be known, and it has been known, but it doesn't inform 20th century Trinitarian theology at all. In other words, uh, Lewis Ayers is right that uh, it, it's not just that it's been uh, neglected, Nicene Trinitarianism, uh, it's that it's not really engaged seriously at all, as he says, and when it is, it's read through the, the, the social agenda uh, that, as you, your own testimony explains, it's read through that type of grid uh, to, to set west over against east, that sort of thing, and end up uh, really taking snippets that could be uh, reinterpreted in a, in a social Trinitarian direction. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, you, we've talked about, you and I have talked about that story before, and I think you even published a, a short essay on, uh, on Credo where you kind of touch on it, but I really wanted our, just the, uh, our listeners and viewers to hear, hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, because, um, it's not it's, it's not just something out there. It's, it's something that you've experienced for yourself. Yeah, in, in contemplating God, I, I I have a prologue called "How My Mind Has Changed." So I I spend about eight pages explaining that whole journey, and uh, then at the end of the book, I have an epilogue called "Why the Church Doesn't Change Its Mind." Yeah. And so they're the bookends of the book. It's like uh, uh, I changed my mind. The church hasn't, and the church, <laughs> won't, and the church can't. It's uh, it's uh, I do think that there's something of permanent value in the Nicene Creed, yeah. um, and the re and the and the 
the argument of the book is that it's because the reason that's permanently valid is because the Nicene Creed, the nice, or or you could say the Trinitarian Christological Orthodoxy of the early Church, is the true interpretation of Scripture. Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people have trouble believing or accepting, or they really they they feel like, well, okay, it's fine to say that, but prove it. Well, my book tries to do that, so yeah. so I think it's true. But this, your chapter, just to come back to your chapter, is is saying. It's trying to lay out where the where the differences really are between the 20th century Trinitarianism and the and Orthodoxy. And um, one of the um, in in room number one, you talk about the Trinity is speculative and irrelevant to society. Protestant liberalism abandons biblical Orthodoxy. Could you just say a little bit more about why did the 19th century liberals think that the doctrine of the Trinity was so irrelevant? I think that one sloppy uh, mistake that we sometimes make as evangelicals is we look at the 20th century and we just assume it's, it's really not good history, right? We, we just assume, oh, it's all Protestant liberalism. The, the problem, though, is when you pick up any number of uh, social Trinitarians they're actually reacting against Protestant liberalism, whether, you know, someone like Karl Barth um, or Karl Rahner, you know, we could list a lot of Karls here, uh, uh, or Jürgen Moltmann, or, you know, more recently, Leonardo Boff, the list, um, the list is endless, right? Uh, If you were to ask them, you know, are you a Protestant liberal, they might give you a funny look, like, uh, well, hold on, you know, I'm, I'm reacting against it. In, my, so, in so much of my research, uh, that drove me back to Protestant liberalism's kind of source, its origin. And so I, I touch a lot on Schleiermacher. And then the way that he gets picked up in the 20th century, um, early on with, you know, social gospel movement and so on. And the point I make is that, well, there's a big difference because with Protestant liberalism, um, they, you take someone like Schleiermacher, uh, he looks at the Nicene Orthodox understanding of the Trinity, and he's very critical. In fact, um, well, one of the there's lots of reasons, but one reason it has to do with theological method, uh, because for many Protestant liberals following in the, the kind of the footsteps of Schleiermacher, uh, that feeling of absolute dependence, that that religious orientation inward, becomes uh, not just a, another doctrine, but actually um, the starting point. Well, if that's the case, if, if my internal religious uh, feeling of absolute dependence on, on divinity, if that's my uh, base of operation, well, then when you come to all these discussions about the imminent life of God, uh, whether it's in, you know, the early fathers or, you know, certainly 
Protestant scholastics, all of a sudden that is speculative and that is dismissed. It's criticized. Um, it's considered, uh, you know, to use the character scholastic in the wrong sense of that word. And um, more often than not, it is dismissed. And so, you know, when you, when you look at someone like Schleiermacher, what you start seeing is, well, when he comes to divine simplicity, the eternal relations of origin, such as eternal generation or spiration, uh, these are looked at very suspiciously and with great, uh, great concern that these are irrelevant to our religious experience. Well, as you can imagine, then, that, as you know, that the Trinity at that point then starts to be redefined uh, in part and in whole in order to accommodate that, what we would call a, an epistemological assumption. And it's no surprise then when, uh, when uh, 20th century, early 20th century Protestant liberals pick up uh, this type of mentality, you think, for example, of the social gospel movement um, at the turn of the century and all that, uh, all of a sudden the Trinity, well, it's really irrelevant, right? If, you, if that's your, your grid, the Trinity is irrelevant then not just to theology, but to, uh, as you mentioned, ethics and society um, and, and therefore discussions of Christian orthodoxy, uh, they're not welcome, and they're looked at as speculative and something that actually leads us in, in entirely the wrong direction. Um, you know, there's this, this statement um, in my book where I basically sum it all up and say, you know, by the time you get to um, Schleiermacher's children, uh, they think, well, the, the Nicene Trinity has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with the revolution and, and ethics. Um, what is God, what God does in society and what so society ought to do in cooperation with God. Um, that's the focus. All this discussion of who God is, that's metaphysics. And uh, that, that shouldn't have a place in Christianity. And of course that, basically means, you know, to borrow from C.S. Lewis a little bit here, well, in Scripture, Scripture uses this language, it basically means that the, the, the Nicene, what I would call just biblical Orthodox Trinitarianism, becomes just wormwood. And uh, it's, it's becomes corrupted, and um, it, has, it really then has little place. This is one of the reasons why Schleiermacher at the end of his discussion of the Trinity, starts to entertain notions of Unitarianism. Yeah, well, he, he's basically a pantheist um, anyway. But the, the, if, you, if you go back before Schleiermacher, why did Schleiermacher want to ground all theology and experience? Well, it was because he's reacting to Kant, who, who accepted the... Kant believed that Hume and the rest of the Enlightenment leading up to Hume, but that it kind of crystallized in Hume... Uh, Kant said that Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers, that as far as Kant was concerned, Hume had destroyed all possibility of 
of metaphysics, of, of proofs for the existence of God, of, of being able to reason from uh, from from our experience of the world to know that that, that a God exists. And so, metaphysics, Kant was just death on metaphysics. Metaphysics, the whole classical metaphysics tradition that that existed all through the history, going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, it's all behind us now. It's gone. It's over. It's dead. And of course, in the Enlightenment, you had the big doctrine of God was deism. It was a very remote, distant view of God, no doctrine of the Trinity at all. And so then Schleiermacher comes along and says, okay, if we're going to have any theology, we've got to ground it in experience. And so he's, he grounds it in experience. But then as you note in room two and three, in the 20th century, other theologians kind of, they say, well, if we're going to follow along in the train of Schleiermacher, who's considered the father of modern theology, um, if the only place we can derive our concept of God is from our experience. Now, Schleiermacher says the, the feeling of absolute dependence, but that's really thin. That's really thin gruel. Like, is, can, we, can we say more about God? And if the more, any more that we're going to say is going to have to come from the same source, it's going to have to be from experience. Yeah. So then you get people starting to say, well, human experience what, what is the most outstanding feature of human experience? What's the, the thing about humans that makes humans human? And, and what's, you know, what, what is really, what are we, what, what, among all the experiences we have, what puts us in touch with reality, do you think? And then they, they hit on the idea of love as being mm-hmm. foundational and central to human life. And so they say, well, we experience love and we have love between people. We have family, we have marriage. And these these experiences then become the reservoir from which we draw concepts that we read onto God. So that so that whereas in Schleiermacher's day, um, there was no way really to talk about the Trinity because nobody was drawing on human experience to to derive a doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but in the twentieth century, people be, people just get dissatisfied with this vague, thin, deistic God and, or pantheistic God. They want some kind of personal God and they want to they want to be able to talk about God in personal terms. And because the Bible does, the Bible says God loves us and God so loved the world. And so, and this is, I think, the, this, this seems to be the part of the appeal to evangelicals, doesn't it? That, that, that somehow now when we start talking about the love of marriage, love of man and woman, love of the human community, and we project that onto God, it makes God sound biblical. Yeah. You know, one, one way, this is a bit of a, a backdoor into this whole problem, um, is there, there seems to be in the 20th century, and you kind of hinted at this a minute ago, uh, a, a collapse between God in and of himself, his imminent life and, and the, what we would call economic Trinity. I, now that has all kinds of consequences. I think what you're talking about here, where you, you basically start to make these assumptions that, well, the triune persons must love in the way that we as individuals love in society um, that type of assumption well that has all kinds of metaphysical consequences right 
whether whether the person realizes it or not. Um, one of them that's been pointed out is the total loss then of divine simplicity. In other words, in, instead of, uh, cons- you know, the fathers had a lot to say about love. You know, Augustine especially had a lot to say about love in terms of the Holy Spirit in particular. But when they understood love within the Trinity, they always uh, described it in a way that was fitting and corresponded to those key distinctions uh, or what we could call eternal relations of origin in a way that was also consistent with the unity, the simplicity of, of the three persons. By the time you get to the modern era, though, that that uh, concern to, to do that the way Augustine, that is lost. And um, you know, we could talk about Rahner, for example. Um, there, there seems to be this collapse between imminent and economic so that all of a sudden uh, it's a it's it. The projection between from human society back onto God or what they would call divine society. Well, it's uh there's nothing, it, it, it's not so, um, it's not so far. It's not, it's not such a big leap anymore. And, uh, you know, the, the doc, you know, you think of Thomas, for example, and his emphasis on analog, analogical uh, concept that com- is completely lost. And now there's almost this one-to-one correspondence. Well, you know, you, you look at Rahner, for example, um, where Rahner comes on the scene and, he also is it can be critical of of the great tradition and describe it as speculative and scholastic and in, in, in a bad sense of that word. Um, and you know, here I'm painting with a huge you know broad brush just to get to the point. But Rahner essentially comes down to his rule in which he says the the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity and the economic is the imminent Trinity. It's a shocking statement. Now there's all kinds of debate. Right among historians and theologians as to, you know, how to interpret how, how Rahner meant it, right, and um, and that sort of thing. But what is unquestionable, I think, is uh, many after Rahner took his rule and certainly did apply it in the strongest sense, uh, so that you do have a collapse, but so that you have a collapse between the imminent. Trinity and the economic in a way that then everything is, everything's game. It, um, you know, the, the, the distance. Uh, yeah, just, between... just to be clear, what, what you're saying is that many took it to mean that the imminent Trinity is nothing but the economic Trinity. That's right. And, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush. There are, you know, variations in, in terms of how strongly that's pushed. However, there are many, many examples um, of modern theologians uh, who then equated the two and essentially historicized God. So uh, God, God becomes uh, an actor, an actor in history with us. Yes, God has a history, <laughs> uh, and. Some some would go so far as to say, and we can talk about this later, you know, certain um, contemporary theologians would go so far to say the um, it's not merely that 
the missions in salvation history uh, reveal some something about uh, the imminent Trinity, but they actually constitute they actually constitute the imminent Trinity. Well, let's just for our viewers who may not be really up on their Trinitarian theology, let's just define missions versus processions. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually really helpful. Uh, when we refer to processions, <clears throat> we are not referring to, uh, say, the Father sending the Son into the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Actions in time. That's right. We're not referring to history and time and space, all that sort, sort of thing. We're actually referring to um, God in and of himself. Um, you know, when we talk about who God is, his aseity, for example, we might say something like God is life in and of himself. He is self-sufficient, um, self-existent, certainly, and independent. But to put it positively, he is life in and of himself. And so when we talk about the Trinity, I mean, this is sometimes a bad habit we get in. We, we always talk about what the Trinity does for us. That's important. However, we, we can so focus on that that we forget, well, who, who is the Trinity apart from us? <laughs> right. and, and what are the missions? So processions, on the one hand, would refer to the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit as eternally proceeding or spirated from the Father and the Son. This is an eternal the reality. The begetting and the spirating are are the are the processions essentially processions now when we talk about missions right which i think processions missions that's really ideal language when we talk about missions here we are referring to what the, the trinity towards us towards the world how the triune god then acts to in salvation and that of course includes a lot but um in its essence, we, we say uh, the Father sends the Son for the sake of our redemption. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to apply redemption to us, what Christ has accomplished. And this takes up a lot of the storyline of Scripture. It explodes as soon as you open the New Testament. But historically, at least, the, when the question is raised, well, what's the relationship between the two of those? Right. The answer was, well, first of all, we don't confuse them. Uh, otherwise, we, we put God in a box. So the missions um, are not just an extension of the processions. It's not just really one thing looked at two ways. It's not just processions blending imperceptibly into missions. They're not identical. Right. So and on the not, one hand... not related, arbitrarily related either. Yeah, so we could say it this way, right? On the one hand... Um, the missions certainly reflect, they're consistent with, they're fitting, given the processions. Uh, one way I describe this to my students is, you know, ask them the question, well, why, why did the Father send the Son, right? Why didn't the, the Spirit send the Father, the, the Son send the Father? Like, why, why is that the case? And uh, the answer is, well, that mission is fitting because it corresponds to that eternal procession that the son from all eternity is begotten 
from the Father's essence. And likewise, we could then say something similar about the Spirit. But it, I'm very quick to qualify, right? Um, that number one doesn't mean we take everything that occurs within history and the missions and just read that right back on the God. That could be disastrous. Um, and it also doesn't mean that we then conflate processions and missions so that there's no difference between the two. And essentially, as, as some modern theologians have said, um, uh, they're just synonymous with one another. And we lose the eternal, imminent life of God altogether. Well, we lose mystery. And we lose mystery. Because mystery is... If, if God in himself is more than we could grasp with our finite minds, and yet God reveals himself by acting in history so we can grasp some of the truth about God by, by reflecting on what he has done in history. So we have true knowledge of God, but not comprehensive knowledge of God. The, the, the part we don't have is the mystery. Yeah. And it seems to me that that category of mystery is the foundation of worship. It is. Like, like you don't rationally comprehend what you, you don't worship what you rationally comprehend. I constantly, Craig, I, I can't say this enough. I constantly remind my students of this because when, you know, for, a, and let's just be honest, for a lot of evangelicals, these categories are completely foreign and new. That's that's okay. You know, when, when you're introduced to these categories for the first time, it can be a bit of a shock. The t there's a temptation, though, in that moment. And the temptation is this, is to kind of retreat back into a very strong evangelical biblicism that says, oh, I don't understand that. I can't find a proof text for that. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. And then you can imagine what happens next. And so my very early on, I always tell my students, hold off on that temptation. And remember, this is the eternal, infinite trinity we are talking about, incomprehensible. Of, of course, he's a mystery to you. That should lead you to worship, not rationalism. Right, because rationalism corrodes mystery and it corrodes worship and it corrodes piety and it and it brings God down to the level of the creature and it exalts the creature to the level of God and it 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 is uh, it's the very opposite of everything that distinguishes a Christian life as Christian. Um, but but I tell my students a goal is rational worship. The goal of theology is rational worship, not rational comprehension. Yes. So incomprehensibility. Rational worship is based on mystery. What we understand to be true is true, and we know it to be true. We can actually say literal true things about God yeah. in himself. But that but but what we've got to the temptation is either to say, well, we don't really know anything to be literally true about God, just complete apophaticism, complete we just can't know God at all. Yeah. Or we rationally comprehend everything about him. It's like the human, these are the two temptations human beings always struggle with. We either total no knowledge or complete ra rational comprehension. And rational worship is in the middle where we have true knowledge, but not complete knowledge. And that's the only posture of worship that really works. 
Yeah. You don't worship what you rationally comprehend, and you don't worship what you don't even know either. That's exactly right. You know, Craig, it 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 does raise, you know, we've kind of set up here the stage for we we've kind of mentioned it, but we haven't addressed it. Social Trinitarianism, mm-hmm. you know, with uh the background of the Enlightenment and then um with Protestant liberalism, you know, maybe, maybe I give you a chance to talk here about, let's just, let's, I mean, we can't talk about all the shades of, of social Trinitarianism that would require another book in and of, in of itself, but uh, let's just maybe pick on one of the, the, the some would say the one of the most, maybe the most uh, important uh, social Trinitarian of the 20th century. And that is Jurgen Moltmann. Yeah, Moltmann is a. I I noticed that there are um, a lot of evangelical, young evangelical theologians over the last twenty years who have been studying Moltmann yeah. as was a good person, and and I always raised the question in my mind: what attracts people to Moltmann? And um, uh, Moltmann is a um, a figure who studied with with Karl Barth and and Rahner. He comes from that generation. And he he is basically, I think, popular because he is. Oh, there's so much. Where where to start with the story? It's so big a, a background issue. But why do people resonate with his talk of God as loving and so on? Um, there's a. Um, I mean, it's it's deep in the DNA of modernity. Yeah. We want to be God ourselves. And part of that works itself out in wanting to be equal with God and wanting to see God in our image. And um, we want God, we, we think we want God to be a bigger, a bigger version of ourselves. And I, th- I think that's what people find attractive in Moltmann's theology, because he presents the Trinity as a family as uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other in equality and working together as a team. And it seems so attractive as an ideal. But what it really is, it's an, it's an ideal of human life. It's a, it's a human ideal projected onto God. It's really a God created in our image. So God's created in our image rather than us created in his image. He is sort of like his doctrine of the Trinity is sort of like a presentation of ideal humanity. Mm. And the and so the ideal society would be modeled after him. It would be a kind of society that operated the way the Trinity operates. Now, and and I, I think there's I think that's that's that has got a seductive, attractive feel to it, but I think it's a lie and it's dangerous and it's and it's really in fact i've i've coined the term i don't know if anybody else has used it but i actually think that the kind of trinitarianism we see in the 20th century is pagan trinitarianism because mm. it's it's trinitarianism that is like polytheism except it's limited to 3 yeah it's like you take the pantheon and to get rid of all those other gods you just come you got 3 and then these 3 live in an idealized relationship to each other. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned this earlier, but uh, Moltmann, you know, he's not coming out of a vacuum. He, you mentioned his studies under Karl Barth. 
he's very much reacting against that. You know, when you think of Bart, you think of lordship and sovereignty, uh, transcend, you know, Bart's to a degree trying to uh, react against liberalism and uh, recover a sense of transcendence. Uh, when you get to Moltmann, though, goodness, uh, monotheism is is one of the worst uh, words you could use in his presence, uh, because this idea of of, a, of of God being one is uh, well, he believes it's it's not only a, a wrong definition of God, but it has led to all the problems we see in society, from uh, monarchies to tyrants. Uh, oppression, the list goes on. And so Moltmann um, over against that is, is really going to, well, he says, he says it, Uh, he says, I'm going to redefine the Trinity as a society, uh, one in which these uh, persons cooperate with one another in interpenetration of mutual love and by that, I don't think I, I wouldn't understand him as saying what the patristic said. Uh, he, he means um, we need to focus our attention not on the simplicity of God, but on uh, the persons, but the persons redefined in terms of their interdependent relationships. Uh, and from there, of course, he's going to make that next step to say this type of divine society becomes the paradigm really the prototype then for human society uh and the type of uh equality uh in terms of social interaction uh that defines everything from politics politics is a huge agenda for Moltmann. um for him, he wants to take the social trinity and then make that the paradigm for socialism. But then it's not just politics, it's um, gender, gender roles in society, um, and, and so much more. I, what would you say, when, when we start to get into the ins and outs of social trinitarianism, here we're focusing on Moltmann, but how do they define the Trinity as a society in such a way that then it becomes the paradigm for human society? Well, I think we need to understand that we're not dealing with, it's not as if Moltmann believes in a transcendent God and there, and that there are certain things about this transcendent God, which are ideal that we should imitate. Like God is holy and we should be holy, be holy as God is, as I am holy, says the Lord. That's not really the way he's thinking. This interpenetration or perichoresis that he talks about is not just between the three persons of the Trinity, but it's between the Trinity and creation too. God interpenetrates with the world. Um, Moltmann is really a Hegelian. He really believes that God is, is, is history. God is developing along with the world in a relationship with the world. The panentheism is that God and the world are interrelated. Effect, the world affects God. God affects the world. They both have a history. They're both moving through time. They're both heading toward an ideal. And when you say that for Moltmann, the Trinity becomes a paradigm for, this, for gender or for family or for politics, it's, it's stronger than paradigm. Mm. It's like it's the 
it's the it's the motivating force that is shaping and pushing history along. It is history. Yep. It, it, you know, human humanity and nature and God merge into one entity in this way of thinking, and that whole entity is evolving together. Mm. So when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about for Maltman. Um, sort of the, the the ideal symbols that define where the whole of creation, including humanity, is moving toward. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I can't help but, you know, it's, it's not just Moltmann, of course. He's picked up in a thousand ways by a thousand other modern theologians. Um, you think, for example, of someone like Leonardo Boff and the liberation gospel movement. Uh, the language you just use, right? This driving force. Uh, Boff uses that language almost exactly. And it's like, it's a celebration for him because now defining the Trinity as a society in which you have uh, separate centers of consciousness and cooperation and wills perhaps. Well, this then is the good news for uh, all the oppressed because you no longer then have any justification for hierarchy. Um, you can reapproach uh, the oppression of, of the weak through this, this model. So, yeah, I mean, it really does become a, a, a driving force that not only then with someone like Boff, it actually redefines the gospel, um, but it certainly redefines it. The, the Trinity then becomes the social program uh, for everything from ethics to politics and and uh, and gender and so so much more about that is that the uh, the ideals are all generated elsewhere and then yeah. read onto God. It's not really deductive. It's not really starting from a revelation of God who is the way He is, no matter what we want or like, and then we just take that and we submit to that. No, it, God is is no longer. Um, an objective reality, mind-independent reality that is the way he is, regardless of what we think or want or desire or accept or reject. God is now um, functioning as a symbol of the developing religious consciousness of the human race, which is our understanding of, of truth and goodness and reality. Where this all breaks down, though, is that if there's no objective mind independent transcendent god who is the source of these ideals yeah. the problem is that the notion of progress is threatened because how can you have progress unless you can measure of that well, unless you have an objective value standard against which to measure the, the movement of history like how do we know we're getting closer to the kingdom of god and not further away yeah. how do we tell that well if all of the ideals are imminently generated from within, then after a while, there's no, like we keep moving, but are we getting any closer to the goal? What is the goal? Well, how do we define the goal? What if we disagree about the goal? And after a while, the goal just evaporates into thin air. Yeah. And so what you have is just nature, just, you know, it's just stuff happening. And I, I think where we're heading is towards um, Western culture is, is increasingly adopting a cyclical understanding of history, which is a reversion mm -hmm. back to the paganism that uh, was in the world before Abraham. It's yeah. not a, it's not a, there's no real concept of linear history moving toward a telos, but it's rather a cyclical evolutionary natural thing. 
So the, the problem is when you lose the imminent trinity, a yeah. lot of things, a lot of a lot of consequences follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, just to, to add one more thing, you know, to that list, you know, it when when we look at the twentieth century, you know, we're we're talking about social trinitarians that are, you know, putting forward one of the the strongest versions uh, of of a, a social um, model. There are others who um, may not line up with, you know, say a Moltmann on everything. They, they may not go the distance in terms of pan, panentheism or pantheism even. But nonetheless, I think one of the things I try to point out is despite all, the, all those differences, they nonetheless are still characterized by some of the defining marks of a social paradigm and uh, perhaps i mean you know we we can we could talk about so many of these right but um just uh, earlier we mentioned just their interpretation of history uh the way that they would set you know, they they would criticize the west and and default to the east uh, as if they um the west emphasizes oneness and the east plurality but there's there's of course many others many other marks uh, that, that then define them, uh, some more than others. But, uh, you know, we, we could think of a number of them. Uh, for example, um, the emphasis is not, not so much on divine simplicity as it is on the persons, but then the persons redefined, right, as uh, it, sometimes as their own individual centers of consciousness and will, which raises the question of whether then there's multiple wills in the Trinity. Uh, and then the persons are also redefined in terms of a more modern understanding of relationships. So this metaphysical notion of eternal relations, which is very, very much tied back to the simplicity that the persons have in common, that's thrown out, thrown out the window. And instead, uh, the persons are, uh, what, what's emphasized are the, like you mentioned, these, um, interpersonal relationships of cooperation. Uh, so it's, it's more of a functional type of unity than it is uh, an ontological. Um, there's so much more, and you've mentioned love. Uh, there's a redefinition, I think, of perichoresis that looks very different than, say, a John of Damascus. But the big one we keep coming back to is this large overlap and sometimes a total collapse of of imminent and economic processions and missions. Um, and that then opens the door for the Trinity becoming our social program. Because once you've collapsed those two, now the however wide you want to open the door, it's at least open. So even with some individuals who may not want to go as you know radical as Moltmann, they still want to say, well, the Trinity is our social program for ecclesiology. And this is, gets fascinating because then you have them disagreeing with one another. You have one social Trinitarian saying, well, I think it then justifies a, a high church model. And then you have others more recently saying, actually, no, uh, social Trinity uh, is what is the driving force for uh, something more along the lines of a congregational model. Yeah. At the end of it, it becomes a wax nose. But John Vizioulis is an Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. 
And yeah. so he, he sees the, uh, the causality of the father as a justification for monoepiscopacy. One single bishop is in charge. And Miroslav Wolf is a, a, a congregationalist who says that the, the, the mutuality of the three is a basis for equality and congregational system of government, no bishop. Yeah. Um, and, and that tips you off to the, the idea that, that uh, really we're getting our ideals from somewhere else and projecting them onto God. We're not deriving them from, from the doctrine. But I just want to zero in on one word that you used there that was important. I think we should try to define relations. Yeah. When people talk about relations in the Trinity, you've got to be careful. When Augustine talks about this, Augustine and the Cappadocians are willing to say there are three, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they are willing to talk about the relations of origin by which they mean begetting and spirating. Mm-hmm. They will distinguish the Spirit from the Son, the Son from the Father, Father from the Spirit, by the relations of origin. That's right. But they don't talk about the relations much. They're very quiet, very reserved, very hesitant. There's that mystery, right, coming through. Because, yeah, all that's revealed in Scripture is relations of origin. That's right. Like a lot of, see, we we look at the relationship of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father, and we we think about the Spirit coming into the world and bearing testimony to Jesus and we think of the relations between them in economic terms, but we, but we are too quick to read that all back into the imminent Trinity where the fathers did not do that. The fathers only wanted to talk about, the, they, wanted to, they wanted to emphasize the, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in glory and majesty and homo usios, one in being. That they wanted to emphasize that they're one, they, they constitute one God, so they were very reticent to say anything about their relations. Yeah. Now, everything that we need to know as Christians about the relations between the Father, Son, and Spirit, we get from the economy. But, but, but I just want to caution us against being so quick to read yeah. what we learn from the economy back into the imminent Trinity, because it does two things. It corrodes the mystery— it, it makes the mystery just sort of dissipate until we end up with the three being just like us and, and we understand them completely. And yeah. then we know we're in heresy. Or, or, or the other thing that it does is that it introduces into the imminent trinity some sort of inequality, yes. some sort of subordinationism. Yep. And that can happen so easily. And, and I think it does happen with those evangelicals who talk about eternal functional subordination of the Son, because they are, they're not meaning to, but they are, see, see we, we can know that the Son is, can be equal one in being with the Father, and yet the incarnate Son can submit to the Father's will in his humanity. And that does not mean he's not equal to God ontologically. So we can know that from the economy. We do not have to read that back into the imminent trinity and say that the eternal son eternally subordinates himself to the father in order to know that subordination and ontological equality are possible. So we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, but that that's a really big thing, isn't it? I mean, that's the most conservative, the most conservative form of the, the radical thing that Boff and Moltmann do. The more conservative form of it is where you take things that you, relations that happen in the economy that are legit, 
Um, the Son, the Spirit doesn't speak about himself. The Spirit does testify to Jesus. That's legitimately true. Jesus does submit to the Father's will. He does the Father's will. That's true. Um, but when we read that back into the imminent Trinity, we run into problems. And, and yet it sounds biblical. Yeah. It sounds like it's not departing from the biblical faith, but it actually is. Could you just just yeah. speak to how dangerous that is? Yeah, I do think I do think it is a major tendency, especially among evangelicals. And I think what you're touching on is we come to the scriptures, the incarnation in particular, and we just assume that whatever happens in the incarnation is that that is just definitive for the eternal son within the the imminent life of God that poses a number of problems because, um, at, well, it's also ironic, right? We've been talking about Moltmann and I don't know that evangelicals realize this, but, um, I mean, I would say Moltmann does this with suffering. Mm-hmm. He goes to the incarnation. He sees that Jesus suffers. And so he projects that, onto the eternal son. And and of course he goes further, really the entire Trinity, but the Trinity in and of itself, what we would call the imminent Trinity, so that he will even say in in a very different sense than evangelicals, God is crucified. God is vulnerable. God is open to the world on, you know, that gets back to that discussion you mentioned of panentheism. Well, what's happened? Why is Moltmann, why does he make that move? It's a certain hermeneutic, right? In which you make the assumption that whatever occurs in the economy can be read back onto the imminent life of God apart from creation. That is, that is a scary move. Um, Because I would, I would say, I would argue, hold on here. We need to be careful to make sure we're doing good Christology, right? Chalcedonian Christology, but, but good discussion. Christology to distinguish the natures in the single person, the human nature and the divine nature, so so that we don't confuse the two or allow something that uh, might have occurred in the human experience of Christ to then just be projected back onto divinity itself or even make it person-defining within the imminent trinity. And you, of course, have mentioned, um, uh, you know, eternal functional subordination, how evangelicals have gone that right way. I don't know that they always realize it, but the hermeneutic is not all that different. You are looking at something that is occurring for the sake of the mission, as Paul used, Paul doesn't use that language of functional subordination. He uses the language of humility. Christ humbles himself, which raises the question of, well, why would he need to do that if he's already uh, eternally subordinate within the imminent life of God, well, it makes it hard to interpret a passage like Philippians 2. But anyway, Paul uses the language of humility to say he becomes a servant, very much in the vein of Isaiah, I think. Um, and that, of course, he, he's he's describing the, the, incar- the incarnate mission of Christ. Um, in other words, that that may be something that's planned from eternity, but it's still referencing the economy of salvation, right? 
we have to be careful then that we don't then read those type of realities back into God apart from the world in and of himself and start inserting hierarchy uh, within the Trinity. Even sometimes, as, as I, I know is, is, is being done, and it's very popular to do, even using those eternal processions like eternal generation as then justification for that hierarchy, that would be, first of all, it's historically anachronistic. I mean, I think it it, it just would be completely foreign to, to the pro-Nicene tradition. Uh, and the reason for that is because they understood that Augustine's really fantastic at this, right? He understood, when you look at his different rules of hermeneutics, he understood you don't you don't confuse those rules. You don't confuse uh, something that is occurring in the economy with who God is in and of himself. That would introduce all kinds of, of inequality. One way I like to put this, um, and, and I'll get into this, you know, later, but, uh, you know, sometimes people will object that, uh, well, you know, we're just talking about something functional in, uh, in the Trinity um we're, we're we're they're still saying you know uh the son's equal in essence he's just um different in role he's a functional type of subordination the problem with that is it plays a bit fast and loose with the nicene categories because when you go back to the nicene creed and the fathers that's not how they describe processions it's not how they describe eternal relations of origin like you mentioned uh craig a minute ago in light of divine simplicity, they understand that the essence uh, is undivided, single, it's simple, and that essence has three modes of subsistence, which we have been describing. Uh, for example, the son being begotten. Well, if that's the case, then these persons are subsistences of, of the essence, which means you can't then say, oh, we'll introduce subordination as something person-defining merely functional, as if it has nothing to do with the divine essence at all. That's a strange dichotomy, um, and one that it might sound neat to say there's something functional in God and something ontological, but actually, uh, when we take a hard look at it, um, it that divorces uh, that divorces the persons from the essence or to, or to put it another way, put, To put the same point another way, is the essence of God historical? That's the next question that gets raised, right? Change part of the essence. Because yeah. if, if the, if the son is going to be eternally subordinate to the father, um, then, then I can't understand that except as a conflict of wills, I, where one will subordinates itself to another. Yeah. And if, if, the, if there's a, that's an action, um, that's not a relation. Um, the relation of origin can be part of the eternal essence of God, but the but the action of subordination that belongs to history. That's in the economy. That's in the incarnation. That can't be in the essence. Otherwise, we're basically conceding Moltmann's main point. We're saying God is historical. We're we're conceding Hegel's point. We're saying God God is historical. God is a, 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 a an actor in history along with us, or he's a or he's a force in history, but he's in history somehow. It, it raises the bigger question, which is 
has evangelicalism been influenced by social trinitarianism in ways that we don't we don't realize and i think the answer is yes you know it um when we look take kind of a survey of evangelicalism over the last several decades we notice for example major christian evangelical philosophers who have not only embraced a trend a social trinity they they really pride themselves on saying um, three separate centers of consciousness and will wills then becomes the the one of the crucial defining marks of the trinity that's been very popular among evangel some some evangelical philosophers um, but then as you turn to theologians sometimes even theologians you know under the evangelical reformed umbrella like we've been talking about um, there's the tendency as well in which uh, they might affirm uh, the, the, the vocabulary, but when it's pressed, you realize actually they mean, mean something very different when they start talking about roles or relationships, or they even start talking about um, gradations of authority or glory within the imminent trinity, or uh, for example, when they some go so far as to say the the father can even act unilaterally apart from without the son, and likewise the spirit. All of this type of language, um, well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because it's wrapped in Nicene vocabulary, but actually it's not the same concepts at all. By the end of the day, uh, you do end up. Um, not just with a social definition of the Trinity, but unsurprisingly, right, it then becomes the model for your social program. Um, we mentioned ecclesiology earlier. Uh, for some evangelicals, it's gender, uh, whether it's an egalitarianism or a complementarianism, a social definition of the Trinity then becomes the paradigm. Uh, I don't know that we always realize it, but if you've taken a hard look, an honest look at the 20th century, it seems apparent to me, at least, that actually, as much as we kind of, you know, point to modern the modern theology and say, oh, that's where the problem is, we've we've actually been very influenced by it. As soon as we start saying the Trinity is now our social program, whatever the, whatever the agenda or the issue may be. Yes, I think I think what to sum up what you're saying, you're you're saying that evangelicals have accommodated to modernity in embracing social trinitarianism, and that that this accommodation is an attempt to um, we we call it an attempt to be relevant. We we call it an attempt to. We, sometimes we talk about enculturation. Sometimes we talk about. Uh, trying to be missionary and trying to engage the culture and we use all kinds of language that it, that it that presupposes the culture is here and the gospel is here and we're somewhere in the middle trying to mediate taking some from here and some from there and trying to bring these two opposite things together and that's that's uh that's a a a revisionist approach to theology which is inherently modern and I think it is um, to be rejected. I got. I don't. The end game is not pretty here. 
I mean, the end game is just to slowly become more and more accommodated to society until we're completely pagan. There's no way to um, to to sort of compromise in in this way. We need a different way of thinking about approaching the culture on these things, and we we need to start with. Um, I think with uh, remembering our own theology and our own heritage, uh, remembering our own what orthodoxy even is, and that's that's our biggest problem. Here's here's one thing that I think though is very important to say to evangelicals. Many evangelicals will say, "You have your preferences about <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity, and I have mine. You're kind of you say you call yours Nicene. I think mine are consistent with the Nicene Creed, but I'm getting mine from Scripture, and you're getting yours from Scripture, and so they're kind of on an equal footing. And um, or you're getting your from not, they 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 think that that when we talk the way we've talked in this in this broadcast in this in this meeting today the way we talk they think that we're calling the church to adopt a particular tradition that comes from the fourth century and they think that well that may be good that may be bad that's okay for you but scripture is really what's important that we really need to be scriptural and whether we're fourth century Nicene or not is a secondary matter. The primary matter is to be scriptural. And I just want to say very clearly that if I've learned anything in the last 15 years of studying this, this problem, it is this, the importance of the Nicene creed and its surrounding theology, the whole culture of pro Nicene theology is that it is the correct interpretation of scripture. If it is the correct interpretation of Scripture, then it's extremely important that we adjust ourselves to it and get and grasp it and understand it and promote it. If it's not the right interpretation of Scripture, then it's not that important. But it, but that is really the issue. Is Nicene Christianity scriptural? And I, that's what led me to read to write the Interpreting Scripture book because because I knew that people would say, "Oh yeah, sure, the Nicene Fathers interpreted it that way," but you know. Um, that was just their interpretation. Yeah. That's not the Bible. And, and unless you actually say, well, yes, it is the Bible. They got it right. That's the key point. It, either they got it right or they got it wrong. And if they got it right, then we don't have any right to just set them their views aside as unimportant. But if they got it wrong, okay, fine. But if they got it right, then what? how do we disagree with that? How could we possibly be consistent with our own principles and make Nicene Christianity optional if they got the right interpretation. Yeah. Craig, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more on that note, um, which I think is a maybe a good way to, to wrap this up. And I, I, I kind of want to use it as an excuse, if you'll allow me. You know, we've been, we've been talking about my book, Simply Trinity, but I would encourage our our, uh, our viewers to pick up Craig's books. Um, maybe you've seen his book on uh, interpreting scripture with the great tradition uh, he he has uh, a follow-up to that called contemplating god with the great tradition i've read it it is so worth your time uh do make sure you get your hands on it i think you will find it eye-opening uh some of the things we've talked about in, in this video um you know if, if these are new to you um not just simply trinity but craig's book on contemplating god 
will definitely help you and uh, explore explore some of these issues more, um, whether it's you know in terms of you know modern theology or more specifically uh, your own evangelical heritage. Craig, how fun has this been? Thanks so much for uh, for the talk today. I love talking theology with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.